It's Wednesday, March 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Matt Argusinger. Thanks for being here. Hey, great to be here. It's going to be a fun day. We've got a Facebook Live going, which we do from time to time. We haven't done this for a while. So, if you're out there listening and you're on the Facebook, every once in a while we turn on the cameras here in the studio and and we take questions live once we're done taping this podcast. But we're going to dip into the full mailbag. We're going to be talking about the next Netflix, which is coming soon to the public markets. Uh, I suppose we should start with um, with Steve Cohn, who's the uh, the chief economic advisor to the President of the United States. And by Steve, I think you meant Gary Cohn. Did I say Steve? You did say Steve. I meant Gary. That's fine. So, well, there's a lot this, of cones out there. This goes to your point that right before we started taping, which is you <laughs> said, "Do you think that the average person out there had ever heard of this guy before today?" And I said, no, but plenty of people on Wall Street know who he is. Successful career at Goldman Sachs, chief economic advisor to the president, and apparently he just couldn't take it anymore in terms of the the tariffs on steel and aluminum that are coming. And he's a free trade guy, and he just thought, you know what, I can't do this, and I'm walking away. Yeah, and I think from the market perspective. Gary Cohn was someone who was a little bit of a stabilizing factor. Market hates uncertainty, and Gary Cohn being in the White House offered a little bit of more certainty, especially around financial economic things that people care about, mostly on Wall Street, but elsewhere too. And so him him leaving adds a little bit of you know instability, a little uncertainty. Right, and at the Motley Fool, we are bottom up investors. We focus on the businesses themselves, and so. Who is the president at any given time? Who is the chief economic advisor at any given time? Doesn't really have a direct effect on what decisions Mark Zuckerberg is making at Facebook or Jeff Bezos at Amazon at you know any any of these companies that we talk about all the time. Right. And yet, I I do think that regardless of who the president is, one thing that has been common in my adult lifetime is. And and you mentioned stability, and I think that's the right word because whether it is the Treasury Secretary, the Chief Economic Advisor, or who's going to chair the Federal Reserve, the one thing those three positions have in common is uh, they are almost always filled by people who project some level of stability to Wall Street. And it's not to everyday again everyday investors like us. It doesn't really matter, but to the institutional investors. It kind of does. That's right. And I think as investors, individual investors, this causes probably some short term turbulence, angst, but long term, the fortunes of the stock market, your fortunes as an investor, much more determined on people like you said, like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, not who's chairing the Economic Council or things like that at the White House. So. Um, short term angst. Also, depending on how you look at it and what your cash Situation is short-term opportunity. Absolutely, because this, you know the, the the I remember so the news broke uh, late yesterday, and I just looked at it. and I thought, oh boy, here you know Wednesday morning market's going to op- open. You know the Dow will drop two percent, that sort of thing. Right now it's down about 06 percent. It's not that big, and yet we do see these short-term events. It's I think there's there's almost never been a better time for individual investors to have a watch list of stocks, and if you if you have the means, a little bit of cash on the sidelines. So right, because and we haven't had a lot of volatility in the market the last eighteen months until recently, and so if you've been patient and you've been building a cash and adding to a watch list, hey, 
probably a good time you've been looking forward to. All right, let's get to some actual businesses. Um, we'll start with Coca-Cola. And I, I, I'm no longer a shareholder of Coca-Cola, but this absolutely put a smile on my face. And then is the news that Coca-Cola is going to be launching its first alcoholic beverage uh, in Japan. Do I have that right? That's right. That's and right. And it's uh, limited market. Limited market, but um, it's uh, essentially a fizzy alcoholic drink. It, and probably appropriate that Coca-Cola's first foray into alcoholic beverages is not liquor or wine. <laughs> right. It's something with bubbles. Um, I like this move for them. I, I, I like it. And I like fizzy alcohol beverages. I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> do. I, I, my first reaction was, what took them so long? Because I, I feel like last couple of years, we've, we've seen things like Hard root beer or hard sodas. Um, I, I know Boston Beer, a company we're familiar with, Sam Adams, but they they came out with a hard seltzer. I think last year, which I think has gotten a little popular. So <laughs> there is there are fizzy alcoholic drinks out there that are available that have hit the market, and it's surprising that Coca Cola, of course, the king of fizzy drinks, with all the distribution power, with all the marketing. Has been kind of late to get into this, and so now they are, and I'm sure it'll be successful. We'll see if it rolls out beyond Japan. Well, like you, that was one of my thoughts. What took them so long? And I'm I'm always interested in the behind the scenes story on how corporate decisions get made. I would love to be the proverbial fly on the wall because I'm sure at various points in Coca-Cola's history, some. Executive or another has come up with this type of idea and has probably gotten voted down. But uh, I like this move. I like that it's a test outside the United States. I like that it is not, uh, not only is it not wine or liquor, it's not beer. Like, this is one of those moves where I thought, oh, this makes sense. I, I like this. If they had come out and said, we're launching. Not even a Coca-Cola branded wine, but just our own type of wine. I, I don't know. I I would be more skeptical of that. And you mentioned the distribution for companies like Coca-Cola. It is all about distribution, and that's why I think this could be a small bet that pays off for them. Yeah, you know, as you were talking, I thought about maybe this is a situation where they've thought about doing this, but you think about Coca-Cola, the relationships they have with universities, for example, around the United States. And maybe this was a situation where you know we can't go full bore launching a whole line of alcoholic beverages just because maybe that you know doesn't represent well with a lot of our partners, our key strategic partners here in the U.S. And so it's got to be kind of a limited rollout. We'll see if it works. But you know, do companies who buy a lot of soda from us want to also know that we we offer alcoholic beverages? Maybe that was kind of a stumbling point to them. But yeah, this is I feel like they're late to the market. They're getting into it. Probably going to be successful. We'll see. What do you think is the next thing that investors should look for to get a sense of how this is going for Coca-Cola? I, I, off the top of my head, I don't expect them. I don't expect this to come up in conference calls, that sort of thing. But I'm wondering if the next move here, if this is successful, do you think the next likely move out of Coca-Cola is? A similar test in another country is it? We're we're going right to the United States. We're coming out with something U.S. based. No, I think it'll be it'll be kind of a nascent market for them because I know the one the thing they're rolling out in Japan is actually very, uh, you know, it's kind of a cultural element of, of that's really specific to Japan, and so it would take them kind of going into other places like Brazil or France and figuring out what 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 is going to work in particular in those markets, and so. I don't know if this test in Japan is going to be 
a litmus test of what can work in the U.S. Because I think what works in Japan probably, you know, it might not work in the U.S. So I feel like it's going to be a small kind of a snowball that's going to roll, and maybe it get it gets bigger, and then they maybe a year or two down the road they launch something bigger that's more specific to the U.S. So that's what you you kind of have to wait, be patient with that. I think. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. And we've gotten a couple of email over the last couple of days regarding something you had mentioned on Motley Fool Money last week. And that is in relation to iQIYI, which is, for those who are unfamiliar, iQIYI is the video streaming service that is part of Baidu, which is the search engine giant in China. And Baidu is spinning off iQIYI. Into an IPO, we think in April. The timing is always a little bit fuzzy, but we're expecting sometime this spring. This will be in the U.S. Right. Uh, they filed the necessary paperwork with the SEC. They've got their ticker symbol, which is going to be IQ. And uh, uh, Devin Smith, uh, Justin Lonchar, just a couple of the people who have emailed asking basically the same question, which is, how is this going to work for Baidu shareholders? If you're a Baidu shareholder. And I'm not, but if you are, good for you because that's that's been a tremendous performer <laughs> over the last decade. But if you're a Baidu shareholder, are you automatically going to get shares when this gets spun out into an IPO, um, or is that not the case? Good question, and it's it's actually part of a bunch of questions that I've actually sent Baidu's investor relations department to get more clarity. But from what I know now, and I've gone through the prospectus, um, I've gone through Baidu's last conference call, a few other things. Um, I'm 95% sure that as a Baidu shareholder, you're not going to get shares automatically in IGE. Uh, this looks to be a, a cash transaction for Baidu. In other words, they're going to sell off part of their investment in IGE for cash. And you know, depending on the size of the offering, that could be a few billion dollars. Uh, we'll have to see um, as as the offering approaches. Uh, as a Baidu shareholder, though, I think there's a lot of reasons to be excited about this because IGE has been—it's um, always been kind of a subsidiary investment for for Baidu, and so now that they're spinning off a part of it, Baidu's going to continue to be a majority shareholder. They're going to still be the controlling shareholder. They're going to own all the Class B shares, which are the super voting shares for IGE. Uh, at the same time, by deconsolidating IGE, they take out all the losses. So IGE as as a, a sort of a growing, fast-growing subscription Netflix-like service, incurring a lot of losses, investing a lot in content, and so Baidu takes those losses off its income statement. It also, you know, removes itself from having to invest billions in content that IG is going to have to do over the next several years if they want to compete. And so, with you're left in Baidu as you know owning the core search advertising artificial intelligence business, which is very profitable, in my in my view, undervalued. And by the way, you've got this. Um, Optionality, I guess, in this IGE investment. So that's Baidu. Um, for IGE now, I think there's you know a lot of reasons to be excited. And if you want to sort of maintain the 80% ownership stake you had as a Baidu shareholder, you can simply buy IGE after it goes public to kind of build that stake up. Um, but now you have a purely focused video streaming company in China, which is the leading company on uh, based on several metrics. Um, I talked about it on the radio show, but you know, 120 million daily active users watching almost two hours of content on IGE, 50 million subscribers, up from 10 million just a few years ago. This is your. This is. A, I think if you missed out on Netflix, a lot of us did. Uh, this this probably looks like a good chance to maybe get another Netflix type investment in your portfolio. It's interesting to hear you talk about Baidu and sort of what this is going to do for shareholders. In terms of transparency, and it reminds me a little bit of when Google 
redid its corporate structure as Alphabet, and a big part of that, or at least part of the impetus there, was we want to take the moonshot part of the business and essentially put it off to the side so that people understand this is these are the economics for that, and they're going to be essentially off the books of sort of the day-to-day Google yes. budgeting. In terms of IGE. It's amazing that it's amazing to think of it as essentially a combination of what we think of in terms of Netflix and YouTube. That they've got the subscription service, but they've also got the free ad-supported model as well. Yeah, it's it's a great hybrid if you like that. If if you like internet video and the business of internet video from an advertising (laughs) perspective and a membership perspective, this is pretty the best of both worlds right here in IGE, and of course. It's also operating in the world's most populous country, <laughs> and a country that's growing really rapidly in terms of internet adoption and video adoption, uh, and things like that. And so you have this great advertising business, which still makes about about forty percent of the revenue, but then you've got this membership business, which is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, that also now is getting closer to that forty percent. So it's really an, it's it's going to be in about a year an even even split between advertising revenue. And membership revenue. The membership is probably what you really want to be excited about because I think that is what builds in that sort of flywheel of recurring revenue. You know, members come in, they they pay for the content, then it enables you to invest in more. It enables IGE to invest in more content, attracts more members. It's just this virtuous cycle that Netflix has had now going on for for a bunch of years. Uh, another thing about IGE, which is is fascinating to me, and I'm just going. This is stuff I'm pulling right from the prospectus. 42 out of the top 50 most popular drama series, variety shows, and film titles in China are on IGE. So, 42 of the top 50 most popular shows. In terms of IGE's original content, they have six of the top 10 drama series in China in 2017. So, six of the top 10 are on IGE. And as I mentioned, users are spending about two hours daily watching videos. And if you think about Netflix, what's made Netflix so successful is just the the breadth and quality of the content library that they've built out over the last several years. And that's exactly the strategy IGE is pursuing. And what the IPO is going to enable them to do is get a billion and a half to two billion dollars in additional capital that they can invest back into their content library. Well, and that's one more thing to like about this move. Just whether you are going to be a shareholder of these companies or not, I think I I, I always like to see this level of transparency. So, in the case of Baidu, it is being very upfront about this is what it's going to do. Uh, it's going to provide greater transparency to our overall business. Uh, in terms of IGE, they're very upfront about the fact, no, this is why we're going public. We're going to take this money, we're going to invest it in content, and um, good for them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, too, you know, there's always caveats to this. It sounds like a fin- an amazing story, uh, but you got to mind, this is a company like Netflix in the early years, burning a lot of cash. I mean, they they lost six hundred million dollars last year alone, uh, and those losses have kept increasing. And that's because they're just plowing so much back into content, which I think they have to do. And the other thing too, just and this is mostly from the advertising perspective, but the daily active users in 2017 were uh, 126 million. That's only slightly. More than the 125 million that they had in 2016, so the growth there has really stalled out. Whereas the membership business has really soared. Now, I think an optimist would say, "Well, that's just a strategic choice that IGE is making. We're emphasizing the, you know, the membership model much more." But you do look at those numbers on the daily active user side and say, "Yeah, it's kind of the growth is really flattening out." Is that because they're getting competition from? Tencent, for example, or, or Alibaba, which also owns a, a popular video platform. Uh, you could probably make an argument there. So, if the market decides, if investors decide to focus on those daily active user numbers, 
you know, they might be less excited about Aichi going forward because that growth is going to slow down quite a bit. But if you look at the subscriber numbers, which I think is the right metric to look at, and the amount of activity on the platform, which is you know keeps going up, the, the minutes per day that are, are being watched. It's very, very exciting. Thank you for mentioning both Alibaba and Tencent because I, I did want to get around to the fact that they're not in a vacuum. Oh, they're, no. they're, they're not no. the only show in town. They've, they've got great numbers. What they've compiled to this point is very impressive, but they absolutely have competition right. in terms of two companies with very deep pockets. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's double edged sword in a way because, yes, you've got these two other very cl- clearly defined competitors. But at the same time, the overall market now, if you're in terms of internet video, you really have three competitors, which is interesting. I mean, it doesn't face the same sort of fragmented entertainment market that we have here in the U.S. with more competitors, or you don't you don't really have a cable business. Cable's not really that big in China, so it's not like I have all, I have big alternatives. If I want to watch video on my phone or on my PC, I really have three options, three big options, and IHE right now is in pole position. Wow, it's like America in the 1970s. Yeah, We've got three right. broadcasts. There's three dials. And, that's and that's it. it. All right, Matt Argusinger. This is going to be one to watch. Definitely. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.